Hello and welcome to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness with myself, Dr. Miriam Francois. For those of you joining us for the first time, welcome. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the meaning of whiteness. What do I mean by whiteness? Well, the easiest way to think about it is to see it as that from which racism emerged. The laws, the ideals, the philosophy, the art, everything which has fed into the social hierarchies which exist in Britain today. Now, whiteness is so normative that many people racialized as white aren't even aware of it. And yet it's been written and spoken about extensively by writers and thinkers from James Baldwin to Bell Hooks. It was the writer and academic Toni Morrison who said white people have a very, very serious problem and they should start thinking about what they can do about it. And that's essentially where the idea for this podcast started. What can those racializers white do about this whiteness in our midst? How can we learn to see it and better understand it? Well, to help us unpack whiteness a little further today, I'm joined by the writer Mina Salami. Mina is the author of Sensuous Knowledge, a black feminist approach for everyone, which explores universal concepts such as art, beauty, identity, blackness and womanhood with an Africa-centered, decolonial and feminist paradigm of knowing. She's the founder of the feminist website Miss Afropolitan and is currently producing a four-part essay series on love and power for Emerge. Welcome, Mina. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you. So I guess first question for all our guests is what do you understand whiteness to be and how would you define it? Well, I think whiteness is a very elusive term um, and so I... I struggle to define it, actually. Um, I, I absolutely think that it is something that exists. Um, I'm not sure that I always find it useful in, in our times. And this is perhaps because um, there's a slight sense of the, the term having become a bit of a slur. Mm. Um, and so I think that at the time when, uh, you know, the the... the quote that you cited of Toni Morrison's and people like James Baldwin and, and Bill Hooks were really sort of unpacking what whiteness was. Um, you know, it was obviously not a time of, of uh, social media debates and, um, and just this sort of amalgamation of so many different multi-layered ideas profligating in civic debate. Um, but in contemporary times, I sense a slight element of a slur when people say whiteness. And that makes the, the phrase um, at times unhelpful when it comes to intellectual and sort of um, philosoph philosophical um, analysis. But that said, um, uh, you know, I think that despite, or if you, if you, you know, if you look, if you put aside the, the element that is a slur, um, whiteness can be useful in describing a way of, of being in the world um, that is entitled, um, privileged, and um, in many ways ignorant um, as well. Um, and again, this is where it becomes tricky because it has this slur element and because we live in times where uh, a particular type of identity politics is is so prevalent. Um, it's easy to to take to, to sort of make whiteness synonymous with white people. And I want to be clear that for me, the, the phrase doesn't really work that way. Um, and so 
Um, and, and also, I think it's important to mention that the, the element that makes it, um, that gives it a sense of it being a curse word in our times is because um, it, it has justified reasons, so to speak. So there are, you know, the histories of, of domination and exploitation of greed um, that are associated with white people. But when all of this just becomes conflated, I think it becomes difficult to make um, philosophical arguments. Um, but that said, there is this sense of, um, of, of ignorance, by which I don't necessarily mean, um, like I mean it quite literally. So mm. uh, a lot of people who are of European descent, which is, you know, the group of people that would have access to these entitlements and privileges of whiteness, um, are a people who are in, in many ways brainwashed. And I think that, uh, you know, quite often when we speak of decolonization, we're obviously looking at, at more at people um, who have been othered, people of color, people in the global south and so on and so forth. But I think a really important um, uh, parallel term uh, and one that goes in tandem with decolonization is, is the kind of brainwashing of people of European descent to become ignorant, to become mm. blindsided to how um, things really operate in the world and, and, and to, to be able to perceive knowledge from multiple prisms, um, etc. Um, I also think that whiteness is, is elusive. Um, it perhaps has a lot of potential, but is also uh, a little bit difficult um, because we think of it from such a, a, a Western um, kind of paradigm. So, for example, um, in Yoruba, there's a, a term uh, which is Oyibo, and Oyibo is basically like a white person. Um, and it is also used a, a little bit like a slur, although I think its etymological roots are, are not, um, not demeaning. Um, and when you think about whiteness through a term like that, and there are variants of this in, in many cultures, um, it's, it, it means something slightly different. It, it almost takes on the meaning of just being lighter or even having a particular type of, of worldview. Because in many African countries, for example, um, people of, of, say, Arab or Indian heritage, and this would be in, in black African countries, obviously in North African mm -hmm. countries, it, it wouldn't necessarily apply, but um, you know, these groups are also Oyibo, they are also seen as white. And actually even a mixed race person like myself um, is sometimes called Oyibo because I am lighter. And even further, a person who is a dark-skinned black person could be called Oyibo because of their their privilege and entitlement. Um, and so I'm kind of more interested in, uh, in my own work in how whiteness would be perceived from these, these angles that are, uh, that are neglected. And I think that, that that kind of, yeah, it helps us to, to open up the term and maybe to move away from the sense of uh, antagonism that now exists mm. in, in, in trying to unpack it. Well, there's so much there I want to ask you about. I mean, I guess, first of all, I want to ask you about, do you have a sense of why the term has become 
so antagonistic now i suppose you know you you referred to the fact that when you know uh, baldwin and, and hooks were writing about it and, and and even tony morrison we're talking about maybe an era in which the the sort of the civil rights movement is very much at, at the forefront um of the political conversation um today arguably back black lives matter has put that back um front and center of the map how long it remains there maybe is a is a separate question um but but what's changed why why is the conversation about whiteness about white racial identity about the impact of white racial identity so crispated today well for one um so when the just to go go back even a step further to to before or maybe around the same time actually that these these particular intellectuals were unpacking whiteness but when the the Combahee River Collective coined this phrase identity politics, which I'll, I want to argue is the reason um, that whiteness has a different different tone today, mm. um, they, I mean, this was a time, and, and the same goes for for when Toni Morrison and Baldwin and Bell Hooks spoke about it, when it, to be black um, and even further to be a black woman. It, it quite literally meant that you didn't have uh, a voice. Like if you were a, a black feminist intellectual in the 70s, which is when they coined the phrase identity politics, um, and when many of these discussions were happening, you know, if you were writing about topics that had to do with race and identity, you would never get any kind of mainstream public attention. Your ideas would not be dispersed into civic debate. Um, mm. And so you had to talk about whiteness in that kind of space was something novel. It was quite unique and, and it, it, it became, it was so potent therefore, because it gave you this new language with which to understand why you were being excluded and silenced and made invisible. Um, and beyond that, like oppressed, not only in terms of, of language and psychology, but also, you know, physically um, in your society. Whereas the way that um, identity politics plays out in this, you know, uh, social media infused 21st century environment where, you know, all we do is talk about um, race, gender, identity, class, like all of these kinds of topics are really um, uh, at the forefront and largely because they are now, um, because, you know, the, the capitalist industry has sort of understood that they are profitable, um, mm. they, they can generate clicks. Um, but it, in this kind of environment where these topics are already being addressed, it's almost like we need, um, we, we just need to, to complicate the conversation more because it's not that what these thinkers were doing wasn't powerful. At the time it was because it presented a countercultural element and antidote to the, to the mainstream debate of that time. But what happens when the, the public debate is already centered on these issues because of, of profit-making clickbaits. Um, that means that the countercultural sort of dissident uh, language needs to be something else, to mm. my mind, right? Mm. And so is that is it that space that we're missing? I think so. I, 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 and I don't know, <laughs> you know, exactly what that space is, but I, I think two of the things that I mentioned um, just now about so first of always like looking at decolonization uh, uh, and brainwashing in tandem that kind of opens up a little bit of a new space and then also looking at uh, concepts like whiteness from 
uh, different vantage points than, mm. you know, the sort of Western Eurocentric almost um, perspective that, we're, that we tend to look at it from. Oh, and that's actually was going to bring me to my second question, which was about your description of, um, you know, white from in, in Yoruba. Is that is there any connection between the the meaning, as far as you can tell, uh, in Yoruba as it, there is in the kind of Anglophone world? Well, um, I'm not a native Yoruba speaker, but I did grow up in, in Yoruba land in, in part of Nigeria where Yorubas have lived for millennia and mm-hmm. um, and there's a connection but it's it's used um, really differently um, it's in some ways more it can feel more uh, hurtful and offensive because um, it is you know like people could very explicitly like almost shout across the street, they could, if they saw a white person, you know, they might go, Oyibo! And there's like even a, a little song that goes along with that, Oyibo, you know. Um, but then at the same time, um, and you would have to really understand the nuances of, of Yoruba culture, and, you know, the same would apply to other cultures where this type of thing happens. Um, because at the same time, it's actually, there's something really playful in that, in which there absolutely isn't in Western um, mm. ethnic slurs, whether it's like addressed toward people of color or or white people. Mm. Um, so the term Oibo also carries a a bit of a, a, a sense of welcoming. And it's almost mm. as though you have to uh, you have to like acknowledge that there is a difference between us. Um, it's almost that like I'm, I'm acknowledging our difference. But now let's let's crack on, you know, let's let's talk. Um, so, so yes, there's a connection, but it's, um, it's also, there's also a lot of dissimilarities. So would you say that that kind of the, 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 the song or the calling out the word is a, a way of, uh, you know, uh, the, the equivalent of like, check your privilege? No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> that this is, and this is precisely what I mean. Like that's that play, you know, and there's no playfulness in check your privilege, um, and or I also want to, you know, because there's a risk that in being critical um, of how we might use phrases like check your privilege or discussions about whiteness in contemporary Western society, um, you know, there's a risk of of almost not addressing the actual main problem, which is racism. And that is why we end up having these kinds of phrases mm. um, like check your privilege and 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 all of that. Um, but there is something uh, defensive to a phrase like that. Um, there is something simplistic, maybe. Um, and whereas Oyibo is, it's simple, but it is, it's particularly that playful element that I think anyone who, um, who has lived long enough or, or stayed long enough or understood Yoruba culture well enough and ever is referred to with that term um, would not, feel um, that it is a slur or an offense in the same way that, that some of these terms we use in the West are. Mm, interesting. Um, well, I mean, one of the, the areas I was hoping to delve into with you um, is philosophy, because obviously uh, your book is grounded in philosophies that take us outside of the Eurocentric approach. And I'm just going to quote a passage um, from your book where you say, 
the narrative through which we view knowledge is both the seed and the fruit of the culture it produces. To produce nourishing fruit, we need to plant sublime seeds. Now, I just thought that was particularly interesting in light of the conversations we're currently having here in the UK about decolonizing the curriculum, decolonizing philosophy. Um, and I wanted to get, I suppose, first off your view on, on the movement. What do you think about the movement to decolonize philosophy, for example? I think it's really important to do. Um, you know, if we if we recall that philosophy is, uh, you know, ultimately uh, the love of wisdom, um, and beyond that, it is a kind of uh, it's the search for truth and and the exploration of uh, ethics and norms and morals and just you know the the existentialism, the the, the fact of human existence and and everything that is imbued within that. Um, then it is, you know, it, it, is, um, it is belittling and it is almost unphilosophical to, um, to simply center the knowledge production of one very specific type of group throughout history, um, which, which is uh, sort of white, um, middle-aged, often quite uh, classed elite um, men. Um, because when you think about all of these things that philosophy is, you know, if you are if you are examining uh, questions about truth, whatever it is, whether it is about, you know, what is knowledge, what is power, what is beauty, um, if you are only looking at them from from one prism, then you're obviously like omitting so much insight that you could have if, if, if you expanded it. And furthermore, because of the the centuries and the history of exclusion and violence and oppression um, that is that is associated with what I refer to in my book as Europatriarchal knowledge. Um, you know, there's a it means that for philosophers of African heritage or philosophers from the Arab world or female philosophers, um, there is absolutely no way that we would look at a concept like beauty. Um, like a, a female philosopher would not look at the concept of beauty in the same way that a white male philosopher would. Mm -hmm. um, and it isn't to say that every single white male philosopher would be erroneous in his articulations of it. But I think that, um, you know, it, it, it would certainly become more nuanced to bring these into conversation. And, and that for me is precisely what um, is so important about these campaigns to decolonize the, the curricula, um, but I think that, I mean, what I would say that to me, decolonizing philosophy or any other, uh, any other realm of knowledge or academic knowledge production um, is not only sort of to add work of, of Asian or African or Latin American um, thinkers and, and philosophers, but actually to bring all of these ideas into conversation. Um, and to give an example, um, you know, like when, during the Black Lives Matter protests um, of summer of 2020, uh, you know, many statues were being taken down and there's definitely a powerful symbolism going on there. But I think that there would be something perhaps even more powerful or at least more 
uh, fruitful to the purposes of philosophy to maybe have statues put up next to um, to these problematic statues. So what would it be like, you know, to put a, a, a Nelson Mandela or, um, yeah, let's stick with that example, um, or a bell hook statue next to, you know, the statue of somebody who was a, a, a slave trader, mm. um, you know, because I think it's, that's where decolonization really happens because that's where, because that provides the clarity of, of, the human trajectory and and the many like entangled and problematic uh, conversations that have happened between us. So so yes, it's important, but um, but I, I would like to see more of the the interconnections and conversations being made between these divergent groups. Yeah, so that's so that's really interesting because obviously there's been a big push here in the UK to remove um, particularly problematic statues of, of slave traders and. Uh, people whose real only contribution, uh, for example, in, in Bristol with Edward Coulson, was to have, um, you know, given given the, uh, the 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 city money that was um, not really his. Uh, ultimately, is the point. Um, but you you would you would not be in favour of removing the statues. Then you you think that that's that's well, yeah. What's your view on that? That they should that they should remain, but be complemented by by others. Yeah, you see, um, I mean, if I absolutely had to choose whether or not to remove these type of statues, I'd probably say not to, um, because to me, on some level, that is actually making it easier for, you know, this 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 phrase, whiteness, um, and the many mm. things that it may imbue. Um, but from especially from a future oriented perspective, um, you know, because it's, it's the kind of, uh, it's almost this thing of, the white savior um, and the co-opting of resistance movements where, mm. um, you know, with time, it becomes tricky to talk about how racism still manifests because people assume that we live in this colorblind, uh, you know, post-racial, uh, post-sexist, so all of this, this kind of thinking. Mm. And, and so I find that removing statues could almost aid that kind of project um, mm. and whereas if we were to put uh, the statues of Native Americans, um, indigenous people from around the world next to these very disturbing and hurtful monuments which still exist and I get that they are hurtful but that would force us to really look at that history, that would force us to, to say you know what would these two people what might they say to each other if they had lived um, mm. at the same period of time? And it would certainly not allow then for anybody to like erase uh, a, a Colston from history, which now could potentially happen, you know, a, a, a few hundred years from now, or maybe even less. Um, uh, Bristol might no longer feel that they have a connection with uh, whatever racism still exists there because they won't have this powerful reminder of the atrocities that were committed in, in their city, right? Mm, yeah, no, I, I hear you. And obviously one of the things that um, you look at when you study sort of how whiteness has changed over time is the way in which it adapts really, really uh, uh, powerfully in, a, uh, in, a, in quite a worrying way to evolving parameters to continue to maintain 
supremacy in whatever new dynamic emerges. And I suppose what I'm hearing is that, you know, there, there obviously then is a possibility of uh, rewriting history, but not necessarily in a way that we might have hoped with the removal of the statue that takes full accountability for what's happened, but actually just um, in many ways edits out the bad bits. Yeah, exactly. And and I think um, we need to be very mindful of that, uh, especially in these times. I mean, we're seeing this, uh, this kind of potential uh, rewriting and reframing of, of history in order to shapeshift, um, not only in, in a kind of in, in these kinds of actions, but but also you know just this co-opting of uh, of the Black Lives Matter movement, for example. Um, you know we're seeing a kind of commodification of of anti-racist education, um, and and again these things are so complex and nuanced and. Um, and, you know, there are no straightforward ways of talking about them. But I do think we need to be mindful that whiteness is, um, insofar as it is this concrete uh, philosophy, it is, it's one of its core premises and characteristics is precisely that it adapts. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, it is, it is our jobs, if we are interested in anti-racist work, then it is our job to constantly observe how is whiteness right now trying to adapt? What is it doing? Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, some, some part of that is, there is some, some machinery that also is, is helping that happen with, you know, all of the solidarity and support um, toward a kind of commodification of Black Lives Matter, because this isn't a movement that, that needs to be commodified by any means. Um, you know, it's a political resistance movement. And, and I think that that might be a, a cue to where we can understand what kind of adaptation process whiteness is, is currently engaged with. Mm. And, and in terms of how, so obviously that's happening in, um, you know, our public arenas, this is this kind of rethinking of who are the cultural icons that we want to choose to, to represent the, the kind of proverbial we uh, of the nation. Um, but I guess similarly is is the question of who are the intellectual figures, that the philosophical um, uh, figures that we choose to surround ourselves with as a culture, as uh, the people who have shaped or should be shaping how we look at the world. Um, in, that, in that respect, to those who might say, well, you know, the, the philosophers that we currently have are the cream of, of, philosoph of philosophy and um, I don't see why they need to be uh, put into question. Uh, what, what would you say to those people? Um, I'd go back to what I was speaking about of, um, of getting to the truth of the matter. Um, and because, so put it this way, even though um, knowledge, wisdom, truth, morals, ethics, these kinds of things are not in themselves um, dependent on, uh, uh, on race or, or gender or class or anything like that. But because of the way that society has been constructed wrongly, um, they, we do, it's almost like we tap into them from different angles. Um, and so again, like to use the example of something of a concept like beauty, which has been really central to uh, like Western male 
philosophical thing. Because another thing that I want to just say is that, you know, you really can't disentangle whiteness and from maleness when it comes mm. to the kind of normative idea of a philosopher. Um, I think you might be able to, to, to maybe make some kind of slight nuance there. Um, and I think that maybe the whiteness element of the white male, the quintessential philosopher who is a, a, a white middle-class male um, is that whiteness sort of provides the lineage of philosophy um, mm. and and it makes it, it's, it's the gate, it's the thing that makes it difficult for anybody who isn't white to step into, to be taken seriously within philosophy because you kind of don't have the same easy access to that lineage even from when you're growing up and the kinds of conversations that people are having with you. And maleness um, is the thing that connects this, this um, uh, normative philosophy with the idea of, of reason and rationality and, and uh, delimits and excludes women from the philosophical genre because historically women were seen as irrational. Um, and so, when you're coming with this this whole trajectory that has built up the foundation of what is today perceived normatively as philosophy, um, in as much as the the ideas and the searches for truth in themselves are not raced or gendered or classed, um, it, you know it is it, it's it's absolutely inevitable that the work of many philosophers does have biases, um, and so when you look at a concept like like beauty going back to that you know which has mm. been under the treatment of, of of everyone from you know aristotle to immanuel kant uh, spoke spoken wrote a lot about you know the difference between beauty and the sublime and he he preferenced the sublime which of course he then um associated with maleness and he did this in really um you know, impressive ways. He he was absolutely a fantastic philosopher. So I don't mean to diminish his work, but mm. but a, a woman philosopher would um, would not arrive at these kinds of conclusions about beauty. You know, and so so when we when we when we limit um, thinkers, intellectuals, philosophers, it, you know, it doesn't just have to be within the realm of philosophy, but but anywhere where there is knowledge production happening. Um, the multiplicity of perspectives, of voices, of experiences will only lead to, uh, you know, to better, better knowledge, truer knowledge. Um, mm. So, so that's why that's important. And and in your book, you source um, African uh, philosophy, and and I'm just going to quote a, a point from your book because I'd love you to tell us a bit more about uh, what ideas you did source and how you came to your very original. Um, I don't. I don't know anyone that's done what you've done here. Um, approach to knowledge uh, and what are sources of knowledge. So, so to quote from your book, you say, "To imbue knowledge with spirit is thus is thus to view the arts, dance, proverbs, ritual texts, epic poems, musical traditions, creation myths, life histories, women's traditions, and utopias. All things you could say have to do with spirit." as sources of insights. Um, and, and, I, and I suppose I quote that because it's such a, uh, an incredible list of sources of knowledge which have for so long been overlooked by the philosophers who have dominated our, 
um, our curriculums uh, and, and definitely our, our thought processes in, in, in uh, European society. So, so tell me, how did you come to this approach and, and, um, and how, yeah, where did you source these uh, forms of knowledge? Thank you um, for the, the compliment and for the question. Um, well, you know, I think it's just my life. I, I've, I'm uh, at the intersection of, of, of knowledge production, um, even though, of course, I wouldn't have always looked at it that way. But, but just having lived in many places, um, being a woman in a man's world, being a black person in a, in a white world, um, being raised in an interfaith family and things like that um, that has a lot to do with it so I've always um, I've always received my education from multiple sources um, and you know when I moved as a teenager from Nigeria to Sweden for example um, the type of education that I was getting about Africa and blackness in school and in society um, was harmful in many ways and so I um, I countered that or I, I combined that with an education from music, um, mm. from culture, from dance. And, and you know, many uh, people do this out of a kind of survival mechanism almost. Um, but I think, you know, to, to respond to your, your question in terms of my book and, you know, when you actually sit down to analyze intellectually what is happening, um, I think what really bothered me um, and what in many ways drove me to write sensuous knowledge was how, you know, we were always told that it is wrong to think of, of anything other than uh, that which is formulaic and, uh, you know, logical and able to be measured as knowledge, where I knew that that wasn't the case in my own life and in the life of uh, so many people of African heritage and women because of the way that we are socialized. And, and I am bothered by how we need to... So it's almost like you have the distinction between what we could classify as the, the political and the demystified. Um, so here you would have, you know, your your measurements, your formulas, your science, and so on. And then on the other hand, you know, there's the the mystical and and the aesthetic and the poetic. Um, so, you know, the myths and the, the poetry and the embodied and the existentialist. And um, contemporary Western thought, which is the dominant form of thought um, globally, it, it forces us to choose between these two. And... Um, that was a that's a huge motivating force um, in my work and in, in sensuous knowledge was to to kind of say no I'm not going to choose I'm going to I'm going to bring these into conversation um, you know speaking of decolonization being about bringing into conversation I'm going to create this kind of hybrid um, synthesis of of different types of insight and 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 just see what happens um, so mm. even while writing I was I was kind of driven by a sense of exploration and curiosity because because I hadn't come across a lot of work that was doing um, that was creating this kind of synthesis and so uh, I wanted to, to to really just see what might happen when you did that. Mm. And I mean what were there any major revelations for you on that journey um, presumably in your education your formal education at least you experienced the same sort of truncated 
philosophies that most of us are exposed to. What was it like going on that journey and kind of uncovering these gems? Um, so it was really, it was healing in many ways. And, and I guess this speaks to part of my motivation or my, or my, my wish for what the book would offer readers was um, this sense of, of, of healing and empowerment and strength that can come from looking at major universal concepts from your own position, from placing yourself at the center. Um, and so there was that element to it. Um, it was also uh, revealing in, in so far, precisely as you say, that you know I've, I have been educated in the same society as everybody else. And, and there would be uh, you know, small moments of revelation where I would, for, for example, I, I got stuck at one point um, with a particular idea that I couldn't quite solve. Um, mm. And then while I was doing a yoga and meditation uh, session one day, the the answer suddenly came to me. And this was something that I had been like thinking about for weeks, taking notes, reading, etc. And um, And it made me sort of chuckle a little bit about how, you know, here I am writing about this, this type of knowledge, which is about synthesis and the bringing together and embodiment, uh, using the body, you know, for as a source of knowledge, as well as the mind and the intellect. And, mm. um, and yet I had become so stuck in what I refer to as Europatriarchal knowledge that I myself um, had limited my, my sources. Uh, mm. So it was, it was absolutely a, a, a journey of, of, of growth in both, you know, the the most challenging and the most positive ways. Mm. Would that be what you would refer to in your book as, as calculable reasoning? Um, there's a there's a quote that I really like where you say the idea that calculable reasoning is the only worthy way to explain reality through is one of the most dangerous ideas ever proposed. Our approach to knowledge has become fundamentalistically rule-bound and rigid. Civilization thirsts for humanistic thinking at the Sahara, as the Sahara is thirsty for water. Um, not just beautifully put, but but the but the idea that so is that the calculable reasoning that you are referring to? Absolutely, yeah. So at the heart of uh, Europatriarchal knowledge is this um, insistence on that only calculable reason reasoning is the valid type of knowledge production and um, and the reason for that is because it is ultimately a form of knowledge production that uh, that serves to uphold the the um, acquisitive uh, culture that that we are all uh, living in um, because you cannot, you know, when when you have an acquisitive culture, and that is the culture that aids, uh, you know, the the exploitation, the occupation, the colonization of of land and of the the human beings that live in that land, um, in order to accumulate uh, and privilege wealth in to very small elite groups of humanity, mm. um, and it is important for your patriarchal knowledge to to reproduce this idea of acquisitive, of acquisition. Um, and it does that through this kind of calculable methods because you can't, you can't confiscate, you can't occupy uh, that which is p- 
poetic or that which is interior or embodied or mystical, you know, or erotic, all of these things are, it's like love almost. You can't, you know, the, the, the cliche, you can't, um, is it you can't buy love? It's such a cliche. Mm. <laughs> I almost don't remember how it goes. But um, yes. And so that's why I say that this is one of the most dangerous. In fact, I should have just said it's the most dangerous idea um, because it, it restricts us to to just being human, you know, and it and it, it puts us in this constant state of wanting to um, to dominate and control and to acquire knowledge for the purposes of domination and control rather than for the purposes of elevation and and togetherness and elevation. Mm. And, and and so one of the solution, well, the solution, I suppose, that you're kind of putting forward in the book um, is this idea of sensuous knowledge. Do, do you want to run us through what sensuous knowledge is? Sure. Um, so, so sensuous knowledge is, is, is all of these things that we've been discussing. It is... Um, the, the synthesis of uh, rational thinking and emotional intelligence, you could say in short, you could say that it's a kind of mind, body and spirit approach to knowledge production. So, um, so I'm interested in, uh, in bringing the whole person and in kind of unifying knowledge, uh, both externally and internally, because that is the, the, the way that knowledge really can have an effect on our on our lives individually and collectively. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's, I guess it's important to, to mention that it isn't about privileging emotional intelligence over rational thinking or, you know, or going over onto the flip side of your patriarchal knowledge and saying, oh, all reason and logic is, is problematic. It certainly isn't, um, mm. you know, reasoning, calculable, methods, all of these things, science, are incredibly important uh, for knowledge production. But it's, it's precisely this, this thing that I mentioned earlier. Uh, sensuous knowledge is about rejecting the being forced to choose between the two and insisting that actually, you know, we are holistic beings. Our lives are holistic. Our systems and our societies are interconnected. And therefore, uh, it is okay to pursue knowledge production from interdisciplinary, multi-layered, you know, intergenerational um, prisons, basically. Mm. And and I suppose if we think of philosophy as the building blocks, um, the ideation, ideational building blocks of our society, you know, informing how we think about the world and then how that manifests in industries and government and day-to-day -day life. Um, what what would you imagine that a society governed by sensuous knowledge might look like? Well, I mean, one thing to say there is that while I do develop sensuous knowledge in in pragmatic ways in many parts mm -hmm. of, of my book and since writing the book, um, sensuous knowledge is also very much a a poetic, metaphoric and uh, symbolistic approach to knowledge. Mm. Um, and so, you know, there wouldn't even be a kind of uh, formula for what that society would look like, precisely because it is in opposition to always having formulaic thinking. Um, mm. But what it would mean um, would be to bring in the 
a, a, a poetic, a, a poetry to uh, building society and to bring in all of these things that, that we've been talking about, to bring in, um, to bring in love, to bring in um, embodiment, to create a society which is ultimately striving toward a, a, a higher dimension. Because right now we have these, you know, highly evolved cities emerging in, in the Western world and in some parts of the global South. And, you know, the focus in, in the prism of Europe patriarchal knowledge is constantly on like these evolving cities. Whereas sensuous knowledge would be also looking at how do we develop highly evolved citizens to actually inhabit these cities. And, mm. and so what that would involve is, you know, also looking at the interiority of humans, of, of the people who would be the inhabitants of evolved cities um, and, and considering how to, how to develop, uh, you know, an, an, an interior world that is, that is matchingly complex to the exterior world which we today live in. Um, and which is just getting more and more complex with every day, you know, all of these crises that we've been seeing this year, um, to name just the kind of tip of the iceberg of all the rapid transformation that is happening in society. And yet there are so few um, incentives and approaches that are looking at developing a kind of um, interior wisdom. Uh, and so, yeah, it would be it would be of utmost uh, critical importance if, if we were creating uh, a society where sensuous knowledge had had relevance that we would look at look at the interior as well as the exterior mm. and on the on the issue of um how how do we approach the question of sort of for the for those who don't see whiteness for those who maybe so far have been uh, blind to it to some extent there's often this um, call, you know, in in uh, spaces of anti-racism spaces, people say, oh, you, you should read outside of your, uh, you know, outside of white authors. And, and since we're talking about philosophy, you know, the importance of, of, of reading uh, philosophers of a non-European uh, background. Um, are there any particular key figures, intellectuals who have marked your outlook and and if if there are i mean are you, are you able to tell us a little bit about them yeah um i would love to uh and you know the, the first thing to say there is that again sensuous knowledge is because it is an a, a multidisciplinary approach um it, the people that i say are not just going to be your intellectuals and writers and philosophers but also for example i have a a a, a long sort of reading of lauren hill's unplugged album which mm. which i read as a philosophical treatise rather than yes. you know it is a musical album but it, it is also philosophy as far it as is. i'm concerned yeah. um, so there's so that's one example fela anikula pokuti is is also a philosopher who mm. has had a great influence on my life um as well as um you know, uh, the other thing that Europatriarchal knowledge dismisses when it comes to philosophy is is um, th that which could be connected to myth and spirituality. So, mm. uh, you know, poets like uh, Hafiz and Rumi, um, and then of course uh, practices like like uh, yoga and Shinto and Yoruba, um, the Yoruba 
spiritual philosophy, which is called Ifa, um, mm-hmm. Taoism, Buddhism, um, the, the Arab or Muslim philosophers, maybe I should say, well, I already mentioned Hafiz and Rumi. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think these are all like essential sources of philosophy. And as much as, you know, then you have the, the, the feminist thinkers, the decolonial thinkers, um, people like uh, Angela Davis, um, Franz Fanon, Edward Said, um, who I think are, are, are important to study and to, to read their work. Uh, Simone de Beauvoir um, gets dismissed in favor of Sartre in, in the Europatriarchal philosophy world. Um, there's a Yoruba feminist philosopher, the late Sophie Bosede Oluole, who um, has a great influence on me. And one of the really fantastic things that she brought to our awareness is how um, there is a figure in Yoruba myth and Yoruba history called Orumila. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, the kind of proverbs that uh, have been disseminated first orally and now are increasingly written down um, are dismissed when it comes to thinking of them as philosophy. And yet, as um, Sophie Bosede Oluwole argued, you know, Orumila lived around the same time as, as um, Aristotle, um, who also didn't produce any written work. Um, so his work is also just passed down um, through generations after, you know, being oral, an oral literature. Um, let's see, who else have, would I like to mention? Uh, the Ethiopian philosopher Zaria Koub, who mm-hmm. lived around the time of Descartes and who also was thinking uh, very much about uh, just what it means to exist, uh, what makes us human. Um, but again, because he had uh, I believe he was also connected with, I can't remember which religious faith right now, but it kind of gets dismissed as being religious, even though Descartes was also uh, very, very strongly Christian. So, yes, here's here's a, a, a few a few examples. But really, the central message is to uh, is to to understand that it's OK to pursue philosophy and knowledge from from wherever it might be available to us. Uh, and actually, you know, the natural world is, is also one of my sources of knowledge in, in, in the book and, um, and I think should be for anyone interested in, in philosophy. Um, you know, we, we have a lot to learn from our, our neighbors um, in, in, in nature. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think a lot of spirit, spiritual traditions have, have sought to do that. But it's really interesting because I suppose what you're what I'm hearing is not only has the whiteness of philosophy been an issue of the kinds of authors that people have been exposed to, but it's the kinds of knowledge that have been deemed worthy of study or worthy of being called philosophy and, and being deemed um, I suppose paradigms of, of knowledge would that would that be a correct assessment? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and that that's that's a way of of excluding, um, you know, because of course people around the globe have sought knowledge about who we are and why we are on this planet in varying ways. Um, and you know, going back to how it is unphilosophical to to think 
it, it is unphilosophical to think that there is only one way of producing knowledge. Uh, you know, for a long time, humans lived without um, the, the printing uh, technologies, and there was still a thing called knowledge. Um, and, you know, again, the, I'm a writer, so there's nothing I love more than being able to, to write and create text and the fact that books can be printed. But to say that, you know, to dismiss oral history, for instance, or music or um, spirituality and all of these things is, is really um, unphilosophical, I think. And, mm. and then also um, one thing I thought about when you mentioned how whiteness can sort of um, limit and exclude is how, you know, there are, there are kind of in, in, in the times that we live in now, you are not necessarily excluded from knowledge production uh, or from having a voice, maybe I should say, uh, on the premises of your race or gender or class or sexuality or religion or any of these things anymore. But it is precisely, as you alluded to in your question, um, it is okay so long as you're kind of playing by the rules. Mm. Um, and so long as you are uh, you know, you're kind of centering whiteness. So to make that a bit more concrete, I could um, relatively often, I might get a, a, a request from an editor somewhere, um, you know, something might have happened in popular culture and they might contact me and say, um, I know you, um, you know, like this is something that is very racist and, and, you um, oppose this, could you write an op-ed? Mm. Um, and, and so it's, you know, I'm being invited to participate in a particular space, but only if I think whatever it is presumed that I think. Um, and, and that I think is a, is a big problem because we have to, you know, black people, uh, women, Asian people, everyone, uh, every group has, people who have different opinions, you know, and, and this thing of lumping people together because of their race is, is in itself part of the problem. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting hearing you talk about it. And, and it, it's occurred to me a lot reading uh, through your book that, that there are, you know, be, being a Muslim, for example, there are forms of knowledge that are at the very core of who I am, but which I can't express in a mainstream um platform on a mainstream platform uh without it being dismissed as a kind of you know oh there, there there's the religious talk you know that's like mm -hmm. that's like a separate that's a separate compartment that isn't allowed to kind of uh have an influence on uh discussions that are affecting uh what they what might be otherwise be considered secular issues but 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 that compartmentalization doesn't occur within me and within many people of, of spiritual traditions, you know, for whom knowledge is infused with that spirituality and how do you even separate? So it's like you have to truncate a part of yourself to be able to express yourself in a way that would be deemed acceptable, I guess. Exactly. Um, and then what that does is just reinforces, um, you know, the, the, the multi, the, sorry, the one dimensional way of knowing, um, so yeah, it's um, it, it makes me think of how, 
you know, this this Europe patriarchal knowledge culture, it's it's actually quite amusing if it weren't so dangerous. But, you know, we have, for example, um, the conversations about mindfulness, which have become so popular in, in the last mm. decade or so, um, you know, and it's 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 a kind of appropriation of of meditation, which is connected to Buddhism, among many other practices. Um, but yet, because there is this aversion uh, toward anything that might be considered spiritual or mystical or poetic, you know, it had to be converted into something that can be that can be measured and that can be turned into formula. And I have nothing against mindfulness, but it is yeah. it's precisely that kind of mechanism that forever goes on, which is which which fragments not only the knowledge that is produced, but also the people who are producing the knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then obviously there's the, the commodifying of it, right? Because most spiritual traditions do not charge you for acquiring uh, or training with spiritual masters. I mean, the, 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 the idea that you would, um, that, that this can somehow be sold almost seems to um, pollute <laughs> the mm. essence of, of, of kind of the transmission of a higher form of knowledge Um and I think I think that that then also distorts our relationship to spiritual traditions when we see them as things we consume, you know, rather than uh, bodies of knowledge that we inherit and need to become uh, au fait with, as it were. But um, yes. my my final question, if I may, <laughs> um, is 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 quite a one. But can can societies can our society here in the UK in your opinion overcome whiteness is that even a thing and what would that even look like well and this <laughs> that's that's a really interesting question it, it, and and you know I have to just go back to to where I started which is that to me whiteness is such an elusive term because can 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 we overcome can society overcome the fact that there are white people and in the way that it might be used uh, negatively, um, you know, toward people of European descent? Obviously not. Like there will always be white people um, and, and it can become a bit uh, dangerous to say, like, are we trying to overcome white people or are we trying to overcome the qualities that are that are imbued in whiteness, which, of course, is what you mean and, yeah. and what I do believe that that we can and I think we have to believe that we can because you know if, if we don't then uh, what is the purpose of of, of being dissident of, of resisting mm -hmm. um, and, and querying things um, now realistically speaking um, do I believe that that will happen in in my lifetime or even in the, the few generations to come perhaps not because of of everything we've we've talked about, you know, and, and most particularly the way that whiteness um, adapts, uh, and 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 precisely because we who are doing this work of dissidents are not looking sufficiently at that particular element of whiteness, and we are instead doing so much like castigating and um, and sort of almost like you know shouting at whiteness which I think only senses it or not only but to a great extent yeah. senses it um, and so yeah 
I think it's it's um, it's definitely something that's going to be around for a while. But um, mm. and this is why I guess ultimately to to end more positively, uh, yeah. I in my book I look at Europatriarchal knowledge um, rather than whiteness per se because um, because that is something that I definitely feel we can we can critique and transform. Um, mm. it's, it's kind of a bit more specific. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Mina. Um, just uh, to flag uh, to our listeners that you can buy Mina's book, Sensuous Knowledge, at all good bookshops. I always like to ask um, our guests if they have any particular bookstores that they recommend, because I know not everyone uh, necessarily wants people to buy it off Amazon. So, um, and Mina, are there any preferences from where people could source your book? Yes, there absolutely is. But I am desperately wanting to get it right so I have just opened my Instagram sure uh, this is no book problem. love it's okay. called um this is book love is owned by uh, a, a wonderful woman um who's making sure that uh important dissident voices are are accessible to readers um so check out her her platform on Instagram and from there you can link to the bookshop Brilliant. Thank you so much. So thank you again, Mina, for joining us today. And thank you all for listening to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Join us next time for more explorations into the murky world of whiteness. Thank you.